What's going on, everybody? Thank you so much for joining me here for this Thursday edition of Fantasy MLB Today. We are a sports ethos presentation, of course, and I'm your host, Joe Orico. You can find me over on Twitter at JoeOrico99 and also at EthosFantasyBB. That's where you find all of our new baseball content, whether it be podcasts, articles, polls, news and notes, or any updates to the site. You guys can find them over there at EthosFantasyBB. If you're not somebody who uses social media, please do go to SportsEthos.com and check out all of our great work. Specifically right now, it is basketball that you are finding predominantly on the site. There's also football content. But basketball is really our bread and butter. It's what we got into the fantasy sports world, like this site, Sports Ethos, which used to be called Hoopball. We spent about the first seven or eight years of our existence just focusing on basketball. It is the division that is the most built up within the company. And it is, you know, I'm the head of the baseball department, and I still feel confident saying that our basketball product is the best product that we have here. And it's probably the best one on the market as well. I'm not just saying that. I use our tools for my leagues. You guys should definitely be using them for yours. So please do go check them out, sportsethos.com, under the NBA tab. A lot of great stuff over there. But today, as promised, finally, we are going to talk about some of my favorite ADP values from the early drafts that we have seen. Again, it's not a ton of drafts. I'm just going to take a look and see if there's been any updates today on the number. And there's an extra two, I believe, from yesterday. So there's 28 total drafts that we are dealing with here. And we are going to talk about my favorite values within the top 100 picks. We will go beyond that. We will talk deep sleepers. We'll talk mid-range guys. We'll talk about everything at some point. But we are going to start here with the top 100. It is, as a side note here, going to be something that I do try and make more of a point on. Uh, is talking about mid-range guys. And the conversation I had with someone who's become a very good friend, Kevin Hastings, who works for Pitcher List. He hosts there on the Wire podcast with Adam Howe. And we were talking in Arizona about how there's a ton of content that's focused on the early round, specifically round one and round two. And then there's a lot of content that talks about your sleepers, your deep late round picks. And we kind of, as an industry, forego the middle rounds to some extent probably from about round 10 to about round 25 in a lot of drafts, we kind of neglect that content. So we're definitely going to focus in a lot on the mid-rounds as well. We're going to try and cover all of it, whether you are playing in a 10-team points league or you're playing in a 15- or 20-team roto league. uh, We hope to give you content here that will cover you across all your different formats. But we're going to start at the top here. We're going to start with my favorite ADP values here. And we're going to start... You know, top, and we're going to work our way closer to pick 100. But the first one that really stands out to me here is Freddie Freeman. And if you guys listen to the show even somewhat regularly, you know how I feel about Freddie Freeman. I think that he is severely undervalued every single season for fantasy. And I think it's probably just an age thing at this point. There's no other reason to doubt him. I, I, I Even the age isn't really a reason to doubt him, but that's probably why people will not take him as a top five pick, even though he returns that value every single season. Whether it comes from home runs, whether it comes from his incredible batting average, stolen bases now, which seem to be a thing for Freddie, he's going to give you value one way or the other. This year was 29 homers, 23 steals, 131 runs, 102 RBI, and a 331 batting average. An obscenely good year. It was the best season by WRC Plus that Freddie has ever had, excluding his MVP year in 2020, which was only 60 games. Not a full season. Hard to really put that in the context of his whole career. This was the best full season that he has ever had. It was a 7.9 war season, which was also the most we've ever seen from Freddie Freeman. He's gotten better with age. He is a fine wine, and I don't know why people continue to push him down. Now, he's not going terribly late. He is going as the ninth player by ADP. In the range of 5 to 12, that is where he has gone in these 28 drafts. And I think if you're talking about 
five or six, that's probably where he should be going, but you're getting him nine and beyond at least half the time, right? So I don't understand why somebody who is a top five player in a top two or three lineup that does everything for you is being pushed down below certain names. And I don't think it's egregious, but he shouldn't be going below Trey Turner. In my opinion, he just shouldn't be. Fernando Tatis, I understand pushing him up there for the upside, but in reality, I don't know that Tatis can be expected to do what Freddie Freeman does. I mean, you can kind of hope for it, but to actually expect it as a floor, I, I don't see the argument. If you're playing in 100 leagues, maybe, and I know a lot, most people are not playing in 100 leagues, but you probably at that point will do some kind of split. You'll take some guys here, some guys there. You know, 20 times I'll take Tatis, 20 times I'll take Kyle Tucker, whatever it is. But I think if you're just playing in that one league, and a lot of you guys are just one league type of players. Most people are just one league type of players. And I think myself and a lot of people in the fantasy world kind of forget about that when we're talking about content. And we assume that everybody is a degenerate like we are and they're playing in 10 or 20 leagues. But you're playing in just one league. You kind of want that safety in the first round. You can go for upside. But I think the place to really look for that is later on in the draft. The upside of Tatis is a number one overall player, but the downside, like we saw this year, is somewhere in the 40 or 50 range. With Freddie Freeman, we haven't seen him produce a season where he's in the 40 or 50 range in a very long time. Like, you're looking at almost a decade here. It's pretty much just the age that people will point back to. Will he continue to steal as he gets older? I honestly don't know the answer to that question, but his two highest stolen base seasons ever are the last two seasons. This year at 23, He surpassed his previous high by 10, and his previous high, of course, came the year prior with 13. So I don't see him slowing down significantly on the base pass to the point where you have to worry about that. I'm not saying he's going to be an anchor in the stolen base category, but you're probably looking at at least 10 as a floor. The projections, the early projections from Steamer have him for 13. And even that, with the first-round pick as a first baseman, considering everything else you get, an average that is almost guaranteed to be above 300, you're getting 25 to 30 homers. Easily, easily banking 200 runs in RBIs combined. I think you could do a lot worse at the end of the first round with Freddie Freeman. I've mentioned this a lot as well, but Shohei Otani is, I don't know, I don't want to say it's guaranteed, but it's very likely he's going to be wearing a Dodger uniform. So you add Otani into that mix with Betts and Freeman, you might just see counting stats that we won't even be able to comprehend from those three next season. So I am definitely in on Freddie Freeman at the ADP of nine. And that'll segue us right into the next guy, and that's Shohei Otani, who is going, as of right now, on average, outside of the first round. 15.57 is his ADP. I know that's kind of right on the turn there. And there's quite a big gap between his minimum and maximum pick. His minimum pick was number two. Someone took him at number two overall. The maximum is 29, so end of the second round of a 15-teamer. Either way, I think you're getting a bargain there with Otani. Not at pick two, because that's probably a little bit too risky. But even then, Otani this season was arguably the best per at-bat player in baseball. I know Acuna was the guy that is always pointed to, especially for this season. I mean, Acuna had the volume. He had the, the crazy records that he was setting. But if you are looking at WRC+, Plus, which tries to normalize across eras and it tries to you know neutralize ballpark context and, and everything else and just try and give you one number that quantifies how good the, the batter was, essentially. It's, a, it's more complicated than that, but the simplified version is judging the skill of the batter based on everything he does when you're trying to neutralize all the other noise that has nothing to do with the batter. I know that was kind of convoluted. WRC Plus is a, is a bit of a, a bit of an odd stat if you don't understand it, but it just essentially tells you how good the player was offensively. 
Shohei Otani was 10% better than Ronald Acuna Jr. this year offensively. He was the best player in baseball by a, a wide margin, you could say, with a 180 WRC+. plus. After him was Acuna at 170, Seager at 169, Betts at 167. But Otani was right at the top. 44 homers, 20 stolen bases, a 304 batting average, a 15% walk rate. Uh, just an absolutely elite season. An elite, elite season from an elite player who is now, I mean... Probably, like I said, almost a guarantee going to be going to a better situation. I mean, even if he doesn't go to the Dodgers, he's going to a better situation than he left in Los Angeles with the Angels because that was just an absolute dumpster fire. But I think the reason that people are pushing him down is because of the surgery and because of the injury, which I understand on a surface level. But when you dig deeper into it, I don't think he'll be affected at the plate too much, and neither do a lot of the people who you know, know a lot more on the medical side of things. He should be ready for spring training. He should be able to play 150, 160 games as a DH next year. Now, I'm not sure if the Dodgers or whoever is going to try and sneak him into the outfield a few times. I'm guessing probably not, but it doesn't even matter. Some people will say, oh, it's a utility spot in the first round. You're not going to be able to use him as a pitcher next year. We're uncertain with the injury. I understand all of those points, but the injury shouldn't really stop you from drafting him as a batter. Obviously, you're not drafting him as a pitcher because he's not pitching this season. But you're taking him at the end of the first round in a spot where you're going to be using him as a batter, right? And forgive me here, but you drafted Otani, assuming you're playing in a league where he is you know, one in the same, where you have an NFBC-style league where you have to choose one or the other. Most of the time, he's a batter anyway. Most of the time, you're not putting Otani in your pitcher spot unless you're in a daily league where you're able to use both in that sense, which is just completely unfair almost at that point. But you're using him as a batter most weeks anyway. I had him in two leagues last year on the NFBC, and I think I think there was twice early in the season where I did use him as a pitcher. There was one two-start week, and there was also a short week. I forget if it was out of the All-Star break or what it was where he had one start against the Nationals versus three games as a player or something like that. Like There was very few instances where you're actually starting him as a pitcher. So losing that side of things... I don't know that it's that big of a deal. You're losing that insurance that you would have taken Otani there. And you can say, you know, my offense goes to shit, then he's going as a as a utility player most weeks. If my pitching has injuries or goes to shit, then Otani's probably going to be started as a pitcher. You don't have that luxury this year, but again, how many people were actually doing that unless you really just got decimated with pitching injuries and you had no choice? Most of the time, he's a batter anyway. That's what you're going to be starting him as this year. And he's going eight or nine picks later than he was last season. I understand it, but I also think that he's a great value at the end of the first. And a lot of the time, sneaking into the second round, if you're getting second round Otani, that is a really great bargain. I don't care if it's a 10, 12, or a 15 team league. You take somebody else that you feel a little more quote unquote comfortable about, even though I think we can be pretty comfortable about Shohei. And then you go and grab him and you're getting pretty much, you know, not a guarantee, but 40 homers, 20 steals, close to 300 batting average in the second round. You're going to like that a lot, I think, going into next season. I I understand the concern. I do. But I think it's kind of misplaced concern at the same time. I'm not really worried about Otani, especially not in the second round. Let's talk about a couple of Blue Jays. We'll talk about them together here because their ADP is literally right beside each other. It's within half a pick of each other. Kevin Gosman at 33.7 and Vladimir Guerrero at 34. Kevin Gosman, we'll start with him. I think he's perennially underrated. And again, even just looking at these early drafts, and I'll just double check because things are moving around every day here. He's generally like the seventh pitcher off the board, 
seventh or eighth pitcher. Um, seventh. He is the seventh starting pitcher going off the board behind Zach Wheeler, Luis Castillo, Corbin Burns, technically Otani, so we shouldn't really count him. Uh, Garrett Cole and Spencer Strider. I understand some of those names, but if you just look at what Gosman did and specifically looking under the hood, because I know a lot of people, especially in this Cy Young conversation and it's specifically in the National League, are kind of against looking at the XFIPs and the Sierras of the world, but that's what you kind of have to do when projecting forward. You can't look at ERA and project forward. We talked about this, I believe it was yesterday. When you're looking at, yeah, it was yesterday. We're talking about Cal Quantrill and the fact that he was among the ERA leaders in the American League for two seasons, up there with Alec Manoa, Martin Perez, and a bunch of other guys that you can't really trust. That's why you dig a little deeper and you go under the hood. Kevin Gosman, if you're looking at pretty much all these stats, XFIP, he was fourth in Major League Baseball. FIP, he was third. XERA, he was a little bit lower. He was, where was he in XERA here? I'm losing him. Uh, he was 18th in XERA, which was his worst ranking of all of those metrics. And then if you go to Sierra, the Skills Interactive ERA, Kevin Gosman was fourth. There's not really much for reason I can see why he shouldn't be a top five pitcher. At least. I, I think he's number two. He's number two in my rankings. Garrett Cole is number three. Spencer Strider is number one. Those may change, but I doubt they will going into the season. If you look at strikeout minus walk rate, you know, if you don't want to look at the more advanced numbers because some people are not familiar with them, they don't like them as much, just look at the more standard stats like strikeout minus walk rate. He starting off with the strikeouts, was one of only four pitchers to strike out 30% of batters. It was him, Snell, Strider, and Freddie Peralta. Strikeout minus walk rate, the only pitcher with a better number was Spencer Strider. Kevin Gosman at 23.8 is number two on that list. I don't care how you want to slice it. He's pitching for a good team, which can struggle with run support from time to time, absolutely. But going into the season, you have to kind of look at the overall picture. And when you're looking at the overall picture of the guys who are going ahead of him, I think it's a little bit more foggy. Corbin Burns just had kind of a bad season. I don't think he should be going ahead of Gosman in any drafts. Luis Castillo and Zach Wheeler, I can understand Castillo going ahead of him, but Wheeler, I, I just don't think the skills are quite as good as what Gosman has. There's more volatility maybe in Gosman, but the actual skills we've seen now for three seasons have been excellent. Cy Young-worthy years in all three of them. And he's being drafted at the beginning of the third round from a range of 17. So there are times when he's gone early in the second round up until 45 as his maximum pick, which is the last pick in the third round of a 15-teamer. Anywhere in the third round, I think Gosman makes for a great value. You start your draft with two position players, whoever it may be, and then you get Gosman at the beginning of the third. I think that you're going to be cooking with gas there. I think that he's always underrated for whatever reason, and he does allow some pretty high BABIPs in Toronto. Maybe people will look at that and say they don't trust him going forward, whatever it is. I, I'll take it because if they want to discount Kevin Gosman, who has proven that he is a top five pitcher in baseball the last three years, easily a top five, I think maybe even better, then I'll take him being discounted. You know, Keep, keep slandering him, keep pushing him down, keep talking about any other factors that you like. When you look at the numbers that really matter, the stuff numbers, the strikeout minus walk, and the pitching indicators, the estimators, I should say, they're all great. There's no reason to be doubting Kevin Gosman at all, specifically in the third round. I think that he has an incredible value there. Now, Vladimir Guerrero is an interesting one because he has obviously disappointed the last several seasons. The last two seasons he has disappointed, and it's still been really great years. I think that's one thing that we kind of forget about because we saw the massive season he had in 2021. And we just assume that would happen every year going forward. He was 22 years old when he did that. And granted, the minor league parks definitely, definitely played a role. 
in his incredible season. I don't think we can really doubt that anymore. But even looking at the last two years, you're looking at 32 homers and 97 RBI, and then you're looking at 26 homers, 94 RBI, batting about 270 if you look at the average between those two seasons, 274 and 264. Those are still great seasons. Those are still fantastic seasons for Guerrero. Now, they're not as good as what we were maybe hoping for based on 2021, but we probably shouldn't have ever been expecting that exact number two repeat based on all the data we had that season. If you look at the hard hit data, if you look at a lot of the StatCast numbers, it's a very red StatCast page. He has the 93rd percentile ex-WOBA, 95th percentile expected batting average, which was 291. His expected batting average, 291. 88th percentile expected slugging, 91st percentile average exit velocity, Hard hit percentage in the 89th percentile. He doesn't strike out a lot, only 14.7%. It's a number that doesn't really get talked about a lot this year, but Vladdy had a career-low strikeout percentage while also having, outside of 2021, a career-high walk rate. You know, 2021, he was getting walked all over the place, 12.3%. People were scared of him. If you take out that season, and a lot of people want to take out that season, go ahead and do it. Then 2023 was the best walk rate and the best strikeout rate we've ever seen from Vladimir Guerrero Jr., he was unlucky. He had an unlucky season. A 277 BABIP is not probably that far off from what you're going to see from him, 294 for the career, but he should be closer to 29300. I know it doesn't sound like a lot, but that would be the difference between like a 260 batting average and like a 280 batting average, 275-ish. Definitely makes a difference. Now, going into next year, you're getting him cheaper than we have in the years since he has emerged as a star. He's still a star. I don't care what anybody wants to say. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is only 24 years old. We have still seen an MVP caliber season from him. He is a star. Going forward, I think you have to take this discount, at least for this season, because he is going two rounds later than you were getting him previously, and nothing really under the hood has changed that much. He's still hitting the ball hard. He still has high expected numbers. And like I said, he's gotten his strikeout and walk rates to essentially career-high metrics. I don't see a reason why he should be falling much farther than he is, which is pick 34 on average. At that point, I think it's a great steal. Beginning of the third round, again, you can build your team however you see fit, but at that point, if you have a target in the third round like Guerrero, maybe you can go ahead and take a Spencer Strider or you take a a starting pitcher in the first two rounds, which if you're going to do it, I would recommend it be Strider. Outside of that, I don't know if you really need to in the first two rounds, but let's say you take a Strider, and then in the second round, you take a Corey Seager, or you take an Ozzie Albies, Francisco Lindor, whoever it is to build your offense. You can take Vladdy in the third round where you're taking care of a position in first base that's eh, not the greatest for fantasy. It's okay, but in a 15-team league with corner spots, middle infield spots, utility spots, it's very hard to fill out an entirely balanced roster. So there will be people who leave first base behind because that's just the nature of a 15-team deep roto league. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. will be one of the best first basemen again in baseball. I don't think there's much of a doubt about that from a fantasy point of view at least, and even from a real-life point of view. And getting him two rounds later than you typically would because of a down season, I'll take it. And yes, it was essentially two down seasons But even if you're looking at what he did in 2022, you're talking about a 133 WRC plus, 33 homers. It's really still a great season. It's just probably not as high up as what we were expecting from Vladdy coming in. Still great numbers. Still somebody that you should be in on. Absolutely. Now, let's talk about Pablo Lopez. Pablo Lopez, as a buy low in the middle of the season, was one of my biggest hits this year. I had my misses. I have talked about them publicly, my hits and my misses, the ones that were somewhere in between. But one of the ones that I was most proud of was saying Pablo Lopez was the best buy low around midseason 
the metrics were there. The advanced numbers were all there. And he ended up having a year where he was getting Cy Young votes by the end of it. A 366 ERA, looking at a 29.2% strikeout rate with only a 6% walk rate. It was by far the best season of his career. I don't care about the ERAs. If you look back, yeah, he's had lower ERA in 2021. This was the best season of his career. Now, Pablo Lopez is being drafted pretty damn late at this point. He is going as pick 53 off the board. He's the 15th pitcher being taken. At that point, I mean, you're talking fourth round, and there is a bit of variance there. 34 is the minimum pick, 75 as the maximum pick. Some people are getting him in the fifth round of 15 teamers. You're probably talking fifth or sixth round price in your 12-team leagues for Pablo Lopez for one of the very few pitchers who has a strikeout rate anywhere near 30%, right? Like I said earlier, there's only four who had 30% strikeout rate for the whole season. Lopez was right behind them, and there was a good chunk of the year where he was over 30%. He did fall down to 29 that's not the biggest of deals for me. He's still fifth in baseball in strikeout percentage, and he's one of the few guys up there on that list who does have a very low walk rate, a well above average strikeout rate with a well below average walk rate. If you're talking about that strikeout minus walk metric we were looking at earlier, Pablo Lopez was third in all of baseball behind Strider and Kevin Gosman. If you're looking at the XFIP numbers, the Sierra numbers, all very good. Fifth in XFIP. If you're looking at Sierra, then he was fifth as well. He was a top five pitcher by all the advanced metrics, by even the more basic ones. Pablo Lopez going in round four, round five, I think it's really going to pay off for you. If you can get a combination of Gosman and Lopez, let's say you know two, you start your draft off with two batters and then you go Gosman and Lopez third and fourth round, I think you're looking at an incredibly strong foundation for a team there. I don't think Lopez should be slipping much farther than he is. I think he's probably belonging closer to the minimum pick somewhere in round three. But you're getting him round four and beyond. I hope he doesn't get pushed up too much. I think he'll probably get pushed up quite a bit more as we get closer to the season. Pitchers tend to go higher in drafts as you enter February and March. and People start entering the high-stakes drafts. The main event in the NFBC, people will push pitching up. We see it every year. I don't want him to go in the third round. If he does, then I probably would just you know take a Gosman or somebody along those lines because I do still think Gosman is better. But if Lopez is still sitting in the fourth round... You're really looking at a great deal there, I think, at that point. Pick 53 on average, I think it's a bargain. Let's move down the draft board a little bit and talk about O'Neill Cruz. O'Neill Cruz is one of those guys who will be probably forgotten about to some extent this year. Not to say that he'll be completely forgotten about, but he's going to pick 82 in drafts on average, um, which it could really pay off. And Now, I'm not saying it's going to pay off 100%. But at that rate, you're getting somebody who is essentially another Ellie Dela Cruz, but you're getting him like 60 picks later on. And I'm not just using that comparison because they have the same name. It's an easy one, you know, the big shortstop. But if you're looking at skill-wise, you know, what you can expect production-wise, it's a pretty similar player comp. You might get a little bit more speed. You'll get more speed with Dela Cruz, <clears throat> probably more power with O'Neill Cruz. But you're looking at a pretty similar player 60 picks later. And, you know, for those of you who want to take Ellie Dela Cruz, but you don't want to pay that really, really handsome second round price, go take O'Neill Cruz, right? He's going 60 picks later, but you're talking about four rounds. So you can build out your team however you wish. And then you're getting O'Neill Cruz, who's going to be a shortstop guy, obviously, shortstop only eligibility, but that doesn't really matter at this point. You're getting the production that realistically could be like a 30 20 season with like a 250 average. That's pretty much what he's projected for. 27 and 22 with a 252 batting average. That's what Steamer is calling for. If we see a full season from him, because remember, 
We've never seen a full O'Neill Cruz season. We've seen him, and it feels like he's been around longer than he has because he debuted in 2021. He played a couple games. 2022, he played 87 games, and then 2023, we saw him play just nine games. So people are going to kind of forget about him, hopefully, and he'll be able to slip farther farther down drafts. Just look at what he did in 2022. It was 87 games. Again, I've said this before. I don't necessarily like to just prorate those 80-odd game seasons and look at what they would have done in a full season because it's not always how it works. But you're looking at close to a 35 home run pace with about 20 stolen bases. The batting average was pretty low, which I don't think you're going to be getting a batting average asset in O'Neill Cruz. But you're looking at a four-category guy here. People will talk about the Pirates lineup and how it sucks. And, oh, yes, it absolutely sucks. But 87 games in 2022 produced 45 runs and 54 RBIs. You're looking at 99 runs and RBIs in 87 games. He's averaging, you know, uh, the rule of thumb for me for a lot of players, it doesn't count for the superstar level players. Obviously, you're expected more. But if you're getting a run or an RBI on average from a player, especially, you know, once you're getting outside of the first few rounds, you're getting good value. And then you add on top of that 30-some-odd homers, let's call it 25 homers just to be more conservative, and 20 stolen bases, which are both, you know, again, pretty conservative estimates. You're getting an incredible player, an incredible asset, who is just, you know, breaking, who is essentially breaking baseball when he came up in 2022 in terms of stat cast and in terms of all the metrics in terms of the fact that he is a six seven monster who plays shortstop you're getting this athletic specimen probably a little bit later than you should be getting him if he played a whole season last year and produced the way that we are expecting him to let's say he did what steamers projecting him to do this year let's say he was healthy last year and did it in 23 with 27 homers 22 steals and a 250 average he's a top 50 pick He's pretty easily a top 50 pick. Now, the fact that he got hurt, nobody likes to see that. Nobody wants to have a guy have to recover from an injury and have to deal with everything that comes with that. But you're getting him super, super late for a guy that realistically could have first-round fantasy value. I don't expect it. I'm not projecting first-round value. But the upside of O'Neill Cruz is probably a first-rounder. And I was talking earlier, you know, first-round you don't really necessarily want to prioritize upside. I pro- Well, I guess it depends on how you want to draft. But for me, I'm looking for more of a floor in those first few rounds where you know you're getting the production that you're paying for. Your Freddie Freemans, your Austin Rileys, your Francisco Lindors, those type of names. You can start taking those shots once you get into the 70s and 80s, potentially even earlier, depending on how safe you were in your first couple rounds, with a guy like O'Neill Cruz, right? I-, I think that there's a lot of value to be had when you're getting a guy of this talent level Beyond pick 80 in a draft is not going to be somebody that costs a ton. And I think that there's a good chance you see second or third round value from him. So he's definitely somebody that I'm going to be targeting in a lot of my leagues. Let's talk Kyle Schwarber. Kyle Schwarber is going to pick 88 on average. And I can't really for the life of me understand it. I know that he kills your batting average. Absolutely. Kyle Schwarber, batting average, no bueno. He is going to sink it. At the same time, Kyle Schwarber is going to hit 40 home runs. He's going to drive in 100. He is going to score 100 probably or somewhere very, very close to it. He was a $21 player this year if you're looking at 12-team values. And for those of you who are not familiar with auction values, I'm not somebody who has a ton of experience with auctions. But he was the 42nd ranked player if you just go dollar values looking at Rasball. And Rasball's a very good site if you're looking for player valuations. He was the 42nd ranked player overall. You're getting him double that price now because of why exactly? 87.9 is the ADP. 54 is the minimum. 
128 is the maximum. I think I actually might have set the minimum on him uh, in the, on the wire draft. Yeah, I did. I took him at pick 54. Um, before there was any ADP, before there was any any data to look at besides you know the player raiders and the numbers we had, there was no drafts that had taken place at that point that were public anyway, the data. I took him at pick 54, and I felt very, very good about getting him there. Now I see that that might have been early because I could have gotten him later. But again, I, I don't even really care at that point. For one, because it's such an early draft, there's no real valuations at that point. You can make your own, but we don't really know what's going to happen. We don't know who's a good pick, who's a good price, anything at that point. So I'm okay with it. But also the fact that you look at what he's done in Philadelphia the last two seasons. He's been healthy, 155 and 160 games, 46 and 47 homers. 100 and 108 runs, and 94 and 104 RBI. Yes, he does fit specific builds only. You can't just be recklessly taking guys like Schwarber and Max Muncy and O'Neill Cruz and expect to compete in batting average. You can, I suppose, if you're trying to do a punt strategy, which is more of a head-to-head thing than a roto thing. I wouldn't really recommend it, especially if you're in a tournament that has an overall component. If you're trying to punt, you're really just screwing yourself out of potentially an overall prize. It's, it's kind of a small, you know small window you have to win an overall anyway. So I, I don't know how many people actually care about that. If you're playing in a draft champions, if you're playing a main events, online championship, whatever it is, there are overall components where you essentially play against everybody who has a team in, let's call it the draft champions format. You're playing against your own league, but you're playing against everybody else as well, based on Roto points accumulated uh, compared to everybody. So it's kind of hard if you are going to punt batting average to compete in that kind of format. But most of you don't care about that. Most of you are playing in your 10s and your 12s. You're playing on CBS, Yahoo, whatever it is. And you're just looking for those solid foundations in the major categories. If you take a guy like a Corey Seager early on, and this was the pairing I did in that draft. I took Corey Seager in the second round, and then I followed it up a couple rounds later with Kyle Schwarber. There's an offsetting effect there where, yes, Seager's going to hit 320 or 310 or whatever. Schwarber probably be in like the 220, 230-ish range, but they'll offset each other to the point where I don't have to worry about that Schwarber batting average being such a tank on my team, and I get to enjoy the 40-ish home runs and 200 runs in RBIs. I also think there's a chance the batting average, not that it's going to be, you know, he's not going to be an asset, but you're probably looking at better than 218 and 197. If you look at the last two seasons, he has run two of the lowest BABIPs that he has in his entire career. If you exclude the short season, it was the lowest two BABIPs of his entire career, 240 and 209. His overall profile hasn't really changed that much since he first came up. His first year in the bigs was a 13% walk rate, 28% strikeout rate. Now you're looking at 17% walk rate, which was the highest he's ever had this year, and a 29% strikeout rate. So let's say, even if that's closer to what he's always done, and that's pretty much what he's always done, but let's say the walk rate comes down a couple points. Let's say the strikeout rate even remains the same at 28 29%. That's kind of what he's always been. And we have seen years of Kyle Schwarber batting 246, 238, 250, 266. So I don't think we can necessarily say Schwarber is a 200 or below batting average guy going forward now. I just don't think we're at that point yet. If we see another year where he's doing this, then I'm kind of ready to jump on board with the fact that, yeah, the batting average is not great anymore. You kind of have to expect 200. But I'm still probably expecting 230 or 240 out of Kyle Schwarber. Maybe 240 is a little too optimistic. But I think he can easily hit 230. And if he hits 230, then you're looking at last year ranking in the 40s. You bump that up probably 10 or 12 spots. Batting average is weighed very heavily in different valuations if you're looking at dollar calculators or rankings, whatever it is. 
30 points of batting average, which is probably where he should be. Even you call it 20 points of batting average and you give him a 220 clip, then you're looking at a probably close to a top 30 player. Now you're getting him at pick 90 or so because I can't even figure it out. I don't understand it. I know that he's a sink on the batting average. Even if he gets up to 220, 230, it's still not great. But the league batting average is about 250. Something in that range, 240, 250. If he's hitting 230 or even 220, it's not like he is killing you in the batting average department. He's not helping you, but he's helping you everywhere else, right? The steals, I don't think we're going to see a ton of steals from Kyle Schwarber. He had 10 in 2022. They had changed the rules to make stealing bases easier, and then he goes to zero. He goes from 10 down to zero. So I don't really know what to expect in terms of the stolen base number. If he gives you anything, we'll consider it a positive, I think. Three stolen bases, sure. Four, sure. Projection is six. If he gives you six, God bless. We'll take six. But that's not really why you're taking Kyle Schwarber. You're getting an amazing bat, specifically in an on-base percentage format. You don't care about the batting average at all. He's still striking out. I mean, he's still walking well over 10% of the time, closer to 20 than 10 at this point. So on-base percentage leagues, you do not care. But even if you're just in a regular batting average league, you're getting an elite piece of an elite lineup, and you're getting him quite a bit later than you probably should be based on what we've seen the last couple of years from him. So definitely a huge value at this point in time is Kyle Schorber. I would be taking him, maybe not in every single draft because there is a bit of volatility there for sure. But I think generally speaking, you're getting a really good bargain. Remember Kyle Schorber is only 30 years old. He's going to be 31 next year, but I think he's somebody who's just been around for so long. We kind of just see him as an older guy. He seems like he's older than he is. He looks older than he is. No offense to Kyle if he's listening. I doubt he is. But if you are listening, Kyle, you look a little bit older than you actually are. That's why people might be kind of fading you a little bit. Not saying it's because you look older, but there's a lot of factors that go into pushing a player down the board, and I don't really understand a lot of them when it comes to Schwarber. As long as he fits your team build, he can be an incredible asset, and I think that you guys should be definitely, definitely at least considering him if you have a decent foundation of batting average in those first few rounds. Now we've reached the last name on the board in the top 100 that we're going to talk about as a big value, and that is Zach Eflin. If you guys have listened to any podcast of mine this year, you know that I'm a huge Zach Eflin fan. If you saw my early rankings for next year, I put him originally in the top 10. Nick Pollock kind of smacked me on the head uh, when he saw that, and he you know, talked a little bit of sense to me. But even still, I think he's at worst like a top 12 or 15 pitcher, at absolute worst for next season. And you're getting Zach Eflin at pick right now on average 98. I don't get it. I just don't get why. Actually, 97. It's Sorry, that has changed a little bit with these last couple drafts that have happened today. But I don't get it. 76 is the minimum. 144 is the maximum. You're telling me people let him fall to the 10th round of a 15-teamer. Why? Because they're worried about health concerns. Which pitcher are we not worried about health concerns with? He's just coming off a year where he threw 177. We've also seen him in the last couple of years throw a lot of innings in relief, not a lot of innings in relief, but also be used in relief a little bit. So there's also that factor. When you're looking at innings pitch totals, 2022, he threw 75 innings. Well, he only started 13 games. He was hurt, yes, but he also threw seven games out of the pen. If he starts those games instead of coming out of the pen, the innings pitch totals a lot higher. Yes, I'm not trying to diminish the fact that there have been injuries there, but there's been injuries with nearly every pitcher in the league at this point. Half of them have had Tommy John to write off a guy simply because there is an injury history, I think is foolish at this point. You look at the stats, you look at the improvements he made in Tampa, you're talking about a 26.5% strikeout rate where the previous high, and I'm not going to include 2020 because it was only 10 starts for him, 
He did have a great 2020, but we're not going to include it because it's a small sample size. Outside of that, his highest strikeout rate was 22%. Now, he only walked 3.4% of batters. He had shown flashes of that with Philadelphia at times, but this was the lowest we've seen from him, and it's one of the best walk rates that you're going to find like in the league ever. 3% is about as elite as you are going to find. If you're looking at overall leaderboards in Major League Baseball, he was second to George Kirby. And George Kirby, 2.5% walk rate. He's just ridiculous. We know the accuracy that George Kirby has. But we'll go back to strikeout to walk rate. We talked about the number two on that list in Kevin Gosman. We talked about number three on that list in Pablo Lopez. Number four is Zach Eflin with a 23% strikeout minus walk rate. That was only behind Strider, Gosman, and Pablo Lopez in all of baseball. I know, you guys, some of you might not like these numbers, the pitching estimators, but if you're looking at Sierra, he was third behind only Strider and Logan Webb. If you're looking at XFIP, he was third behind Strider and Logan Webb as well. ERA, which is the actual number, and a lot of people like to look at actual ERA, he was outside of the top 10. He had a 3.50 ERA, but that was the highest number of all the pitching indicators, 3.50 was the worst of them all. And yes, that was the actual ERA, but we had a 3.11 XERA, 3.01 XFIP, uh, excuse me, 3.01 FIP, 3.12 XFIP. He, by all accounts, by what the numbers are telling us, should have actually been better than he was this season. And some people will say, well, what about the BABIP? What about the left on base percentages? Sometimes those can skew the numbers. The guy allows a stupidly low BABIP for one season. Nobody's balls are getting through the infield. And maybe he just got lucky, right? He had a 295 Babbitt, which was pretty much exactly league average. He well, stranded 73% of base runners, which is literally league average. It was between 72 and 74% most years. He did not get lucky. This is who he was. If you're going to look at it from any perspective, it's actually that he got unlucky. He should have actually had a lower ERA than he did. He got some Cy Young votes when the balloting came out yesterday. He probably should have got more. He was one of the biggest reasons why Tampa was able to be as successful as they were in spite of the fact that they had a lot of injuries and they lost Franco and they lost a bunch of other players, it was pretty much, honestly, if I had to put it down to two players, Isak Paredes and Zach Eflin were the biggest reasons why Tampa was able to still be as successful as they were. Eflin being drafted as the 98th player off the board or 97th, whatever it is, is disrespectful. Like, okay, he was the 22nd ranked player last year. Is it realistic that he'll be 22nd overall again? Probably not. He won 16 games. Wins are very not sticky year to year. You might win 22 games one year and then win seven the next year while throwing the exact same pitches and having the same results. Wins are random. So there is a good chunk of the value that does happen from wins, 16 wins. But you regress that to even like 12 or 13 wins, you're still looking at a pitcher throwing for one of the best teams in baseball who just came off of an elite season and he's being drafted 70 or 80 picks below where he finished in 2023 because people are worried about the injuries. I'm worried about the injuries with literally every pitcher in baseball. So that's not a legitimate enough reason for me to say, yeah, you know, I I don't want Zach Eflin. I don't want any piece of him. If he was going in the third round, I'd probably agree with you. But he's going a lot of the time past pick 100. You know, the average is 97. That means half the time it's above, half the time it's below generally. A lot of the time you're getting him even later than that, and that's already seventh round of a 15-teamer. You're talking seventh or eighth round Zach Eflin. I think, you know, you could build out a pitching staff realistically that is Gosman in the third, Lopez in the fourth, and Eflin in like the eighth. And my God, you are probably looking at an incredible, incredible season where you can fill in guys later on. You know, that's a foundation where you don't have to really even draft pitchers at all outside of those three for the first 15 or so rounds. I'm not talking about relievers. I'm talking about starting pitchers. 
But you start off with those three who I think are all going lower than they should be. And I think you got a really strong foundation. Obviously, that's my opinion. I'm going to be heavily biased because these are my guys. These are the players that I'm currently drafting ahead of their ADP. But let me know what you guys think. At JoeOrico99 over on Twitter, at EthosFantasyBB as well. Reach out specifically to the personal account, and I will answer any questions you guys have regarding this or anything else we've talked about or will talk about. Shoot your shit. Talk about whatever we got uh, going on in your leagues. If you're talking dynasty, off-season stuff, if you're looking at the next year, reach out with any questions you do have. And, of course, do check out sportsethos.com. There's a lot of great content over there. One last thing I will say before I let you go, and I, I always forget to do this at the top of the show, but if you're still listening here at the end and you haven't done so already, hit the rating and review button. Hit us, hit us with a five-star review. I'd really appreciate that as the baseball season is now done. There are no games being played. Fewer people are listening to baseball podcasts. It is just the way of the world. When a sport's not in season, less people are interested. But you guys can really help make up for that. You hit the likes. You hit the five-star buttons. You leave a review, and it will help out the algorithm, which works. I'm not really sure how exactly it all works, but it does help more people to see the show. So you guys can really help out for free just by taking a couple seconds and hitting a couple buttons on your phone or your computer. But I'll leave it there. Tomorrow, we'll talk about the players I do not like within the top 100. The players I think are being overdrafted or their price is just too rich for me. We'll talk about that tomorrow. But until then, guys, take care. Have a great night. And cheers. <laughs>